Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman. I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from Jess Decker, who shares musings on motherhood and a novel that slows her down. Here's more from Jess. My name is Jess Decker, and I'm a bookish content creator. I run the Bookstagram account, Jess Decker Reads. I'm also a paralegal and a mom to an almost four-year-old daughter. As a parent, life can often feel chaotic, messy, like you're constantly running at top speed, multitasking your way through the day. At least I know that's how I feel 100% of the time. And when I do get the chance to slow down, it's when my child is already asleep. When I get to relax, that's the time the guilt starts to set in. Should I have spent more time slowing down and playing with my child, cuddling with my child instead of getting all those dishes done? It's a constant battle in my mind. So many tasks to do, not enough time, which ultimately leads to anxiety and lack of patience, and then at the end of the day, exhaustion and guilt. I rely on those moments that remind me I need to slow down and take a breath. So when I came across a book this past year, a debut called Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies by Maddie Mortimer, it was exactly what I needed to remind me that I need to slow down and be present with my toddler. Because these years pass so quickly, and life is so short, and to not take this relationship I have with her for granted. Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies is a story unlike any other I've read. It is told from the perspective of Leah, a mother, a wife, a lover of words, but also told from the perspective of the cancer that is taking over her body. There are many passages that immediately made me want to hug my daughter. I'll share two of them now. Because death also makes the things that never seem to matter begin to matter, all in a matter of seconds. And motherhood is nothing but a great reminder that life begins and ends with the body. This book was full of unflinching honesty and raw emotion, and when the days start to feel a bit too messy, I'll reflect back on passages from this book, slow down, set all the tasks aside, and hold my daughter close. Thank you so much again to Jess for sharing. Again, the novel she mentioned is Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies by Maddie Mortimer, and you can also follow Jess on social at Jess Decker Reads. Now here's my conversation with Katherine May. How do we find and maintain a sense of wonder in a world that's become so unpredictable? Catherine May tackles this pressing question in her latest book, Enchantment, which is an invitation to each of us to experience life in all its sensual complexity and to find the beauty waiting for us there. Calling upon the natural elements, earth, water, fire, and air, Catherine launches a personal and collective investigation into how we can restore ourselves and restoke imagination. Far from prescriptive, Catherine's work always invokes readers to follow their curiosities to slow down and open themselves up to a process of reflection. As she writes in Enchantment, when we look for enchantment to give us direct, concrete revelations, we miss the point. It is too big for us to swallow all at once. It teaches us in constellations and invites us to undertake the slow, lifelong work of assimilating a moment. And in this interview, Catherine shared more about the winding process of finding enchantment, the nurturing and nature of motherhood, and what she's learned from living, working, and creating, both online and off. In full disclosure, this interview with Catherine actually took place at the height of this past winter, so I can't think of a better way to honor the themes explored in enchantment than by sharing this episode during my own period of re-emergence. But season aside, there's a lot to take away from our conversation. So without giving too much more away, here's Catherine May, author of Enchantment. 
goodness, I feel like I'm so entangled with my profession because before it became my job, it was my hobby. And so now I'm always a bit lost about what I do with my time when I'm not writing, to be honest. Probably just writing something else instead. Um, I'm a lover of the sea. And so I live by the sea in Whitstable in Kent with my husband and my son. I have a few pets. I do enjoy spending time with my dog and my cats. I love to swim in the sea. I try to walk every day when I can. And that's pretty much everything I do, really. Do you walk with your dog <laughs> along the sea? or Sometimes. Although the dog is, <laughs> the dog has a few issues with walking because uh, we adopted her as a stray puppy with a very badly broken leg. And so although she has, she kept all four legs, which was a bit of a surprise, she still doesn't like walking very far. You can see that it begins to ache a little after a while. So if I really want to walk, I have to leave the dog at home. <laughs> that wasn't my vision of having a dog. I thought we'd be hanging out all day. But no, she gets very fed up with me if I try and take her too far. <laughs> Well, I guess that's the definition of a slow story. She forces you to yes. keep your pace in check, maybe. Well, yeah, she she often, uh, she protests when we get to a certain point in the beach and keeps trying to leave. She knows all the exit points. Mm. So, <laughs> so eventually I have to take her home. <laughs> yeah, I don't have dogs. I actually have a lion head rabbit. Are you familiar with that breed? Oh, yes. How gorgeous. She, I mean, she is the embodiment of enchantment. And she's also very gorgeous. But just as you're saying the word <laughs> protest, that's very much in line with her personality as well. She wants what she wants when she <laughs> wants it. <laughs> yeah, I have ways of letting you know. <laughs> you garden too. Actually, I'm the world's most hopeless gardener. I have a garden, but I regularly let it overgrow and then panic and <laughs> raise it to the ground. <laughs> I have like whatever the reverse of a talent is for garden. I just kill everything. I don't even know how I do it. And I, yeah, so so I think about gardening a lot. Does that count? Yeah. I think one day it will turn into gardening, but it hasn't yet. Yeah. I've listened to some other interviews that you've done and gardening seems to pop up. So I just wanted to see how that process was going, if it was going. I am in the annual phase of thinking, oh, I could really plant this garden out this year and it would look amazing. And I will probably think back till about August and then get overcome by how many weeds are there and give up. <laughs> What I know is that I hate lawns. I just think they are a big waste of dead green space. And so I abolished my lawn like about 10 years ago. And then I've regretted it ever since because a lawn is there because it's easy to look after. You just have to mow it every few weeks and, and maybe even let it grow sometimes. And so I do now understand why other people have lawns and I've come down off my high horse. <laughs> I still don't have one. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I live in New York, so. Lawns are a very long way away. <laughs> yeah. I do live down the street from Prospect <laughs> Park, which is nice. So that's my backyard. That's the trade-off, I guess. Yeah, you see, I actually, I mean, the beach is my garden. That's what I spend time sitting on if I'm going to sit anywhere. I think that's probably why my garden gets so abandoned, really, because there's this great, big, amazing wild space five minutes walk from my house, um, and it's got a sea. So really, why would I sit in my garden? That's the problem. I mean, I feel like the sea and water have been so central to a lot of turning points in your life mm, and mm. a way to sort of remove you from spaces and also place you in the present moment. So it's interesting that duality of the sea is this place that's grounding, but also moving. Yeah, I think I've just 
always been pointed towards the sea. Like even when I was a little kid, my family would take me to the seaside and they'd kind of complain because I'd just drift towards the sea without them being able to control it. Like there was nothing they could do to stop me from keep wandering into it. And I always used to tell them that I wanted to live by the sea, which I write about this in Enchantment. My family thought that was hilarious because to them that was like the most impractical dream. Why would you live in this place that's going to blow sand into your house all the time? (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I'm not a lover of sand in any way. So I live by Pebble Beach, which is just right for me but it's always called me in this way that I don't feel is in my control and I feel like it provides almost every function in my life like it sort of wakes me up it soothes me it helps me to think it brings me new ideas I socialize by it I exercise in it I listen to it (laughs) Like it's really multifunctional for me. And the only thing I wish is that I lived a tiny bit closer so that I could actually see it out of my window. I think it's nice that you have a little bit of distance because it creates a sort of ritual and maybe a level of accountability to go and be near this place that gives you so much and gives itself so much. For sure. I mean, I know lots of people who live in town who quite happily say that they don't see the sea from one month to the next, even though they're right beside it. And I, you know, I make it a practice to see the sea every day. That's a really simple goal to have. And sometimes that means on a very busy day that I drive past it as I go home. I kind of change my route slightly just so that I can glimpse it. But most days that means I walk down to it and say hello. Because the thing with the sea is it presents something completely different to you every day. Like today it's been really foggy. And so the light on the beach is quite strange because it's sunny and foggy at the same time. And there's this extraordinary glow there. And it's like walking into a very, very different universe altogether. Whereas yesterday it was kind of grey and the sea looked kind of muddy and cross. And today it's celestial. And maybe tomorrow it'll have that flat thing going on where it turns into a mill pond. It's just lovely to keep going back and seeing this familiar place that is totally unfamiliar every day. And then seeing yourself change alongside it. (laughs) Yeah, you can't help but have your mood altered by the sea, I don't think, or certainly for me. I just do a big exhale whenever I see it. There's there's no mediation of my thoughts, really. It, It talks to my body directly. Absolutely. And I think in terms of kind of coming back to your body and really being in the present moment, I mean, you write so beautifully about reclaiming that in enchantment and wintering. You know, at the end of wintering, you wrote this passage that really resonated with me. You said that sometimes the best response to our howls of anguish is the honest one. We need friends who wince along the pain, who tolerate our gloom, and who allow us to be weak for a while when we're finding our feet again. We need people who acknowledge that we can't always hang on, that sometimes everything breaks. And short of that, we need to perform those functions for ourselves, to give ourselves a break when we need it, and to be kind, to find our own grit in our own time. And I think as we get into talking about, you know, your writing process and everything that goes into what you do, I'd like to kind of start on an honest note. Globally, a lot of things remain pretty precarious. So I have a two-part question for you. What is difficult for you right now and how have you given yourself a break through this time? 
Well, I mean, this beginning of 2023 has been really tough for me because I've not been very well. I've had a flare up of the same thing I wrote about at the beginning of wintering. And yeah, and with all the publicity for my book building up and it becomes a very busy time, I've actually had to cancel out whole swathes of my diary and just rest. You know, I've had no choice but to rest. I mean, that's the thing I've had to say about wintering over and over again, because quite often people will read it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you get this talking about slow living. I bet it's exactly the same. A certain type of person will read it and say, oh, but I don't have the luxury of slowing down. <laughs> I don't have the luxury of letting everything stop. And I've had to say over and over again, like that completely misses the point because the problem is you are stopped. Like it's not of your bidding. There are things that come to you in life that will stop you. And, you know, serious illness is, is one of them. And so I've had to be taking my own medicine in the last few weeks and spending a lot of time on the sofa or in bed watching movies and letting everyone else pick up the slack for a while and that's it's hard uh, but I think it's it's actually been really important for me to be honest because I do have a tendency to think that the world doesn't carry on functioning if I'm not watching it you know <laughs> I've got to be personally supervising everything. And that's a modern disease that a lot of us have succumbed to. And I've actually had to let go for a few weeks and let other people be brilliant and take over. And it's actually been very comforting, ultimately, to know that despite how visible you feel as an author, that you are the peak of a very, very big iceberg of very talented, wonderful people. <laughs> I hope you're feeling better. It's normal, you know? It's normal to be sick. Um, just because it's invisible in a lot of our culture, it's actually very, very normal to have periods of, of illness in your life. And it will come to every one of us at some point, even if it hasn't already. So, yeah, I, my grandfather, who was like a model slow liver, used to say that a little spell in hospital does everyone good. <laughs> and I don't think he meant because of the medicine. <laughs> I think what he meant was to actually to hand yourself over to people and to put yourself in someone else's care for a while is actually surprisingly good for the soul. I'm in the middle of learning one of those lessons right now. It's a lifelong lesson, I think. We'll have to keep learning different points in our lives, different proximities. Yeah. yeah. Has this period impacted or taught you something about how you write and what you want to write about? And I wonder too, wintering and enchantment are very much in conversation with one another, but was there something that you had to leave behind in how you wrote Wintering in order to write Enchantment? Yeah, it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to say in Enchantment because my instinct was to write something completely different. And that's how I often work. I just kind of jump around. But I knew that the two books had to feel coherent together. And that felt like an enormous responsibility because... By the time I started writing Enchantment, I was already receiving so much feedback from people saying that it had been a hugely meaningful book for them and that it, in a way it had kind of defined this era, this pandemic era in which it landed and had given people a language to talk about what they were going through. And while that's a wonderful thing to hear, it does rather put some pressure on you for what you write next because that 
meaning, that kind of resonance that Wintering found with that time was just entirely coincidental as far as I was concerned. There was no way I could have planned it, even if I'd have wanted to. And so, you know, I began to think, what do I need to say about the world next? Like, what's useful? I'm very motivated by service. And so it kind of stuck me for a while because I didn't know what I could say that would help in this age that we're finding ourselves in that is so profoundly odd, you know, where we feel so homeless after maybe growing up thinking we understood how it all worked and that there was this progress going on. And I think a lot of us felt quite hopeful about the direction of change. And now everything has been shaken up again. And I wanted to say something about that, but I wanted to do it in a way that was pointed towards healing rather than throwing another grenade into the arena, which, you know, is, has become so much of our discourse. So yeah, that's a long way of answering your question, really, which is to say that I had to vastly change my approach to writing in the face of that, because I needed to do it by trial and error this time. Like Wintering came to me whole, and my previous book, Electricity of Every Living Thing, did the same. Like I saw the whole concept in one go, and I went out and wrote that. Whereas Enchantment was much more of a process of feeling my way through it slowly and deliberately wasting my time on it. You know, not being efficient, not saying, okay, well, I'm going to write, <laughs> you know, I'm going to write 50,000 words, and that means I'm going to write. 10,000 words a week and it'll be done in so many weeks you know that was not how this book worked in any way shape or form and in fact it was the opposite it was kind of going in and saying right I'm feeling the need to write this chapter but I don't think it's got a place in the book but I'm going to learn something through that process of writing and you know my editor found it quite funny how willing I was to dump things that I, you know that look fully carefully written and she'd say I'm not sure if it fits and I'd be like great no worries let's do another one it was actually quite a grueling process but it was also really exciting for me like it demanded my complete engagement and it really challenged me to I don't know, to work in a way that was very process-led. And, you know, there's a lot in the book about humility, and I felt like I needed to approach it with a dose of personal humility to just accept that I just didn't have the answer, but that I could maybe go out and find what to say. So that's how it happened, really. Is there a period of mourning that follows putting a book out for you? I mean, this one's particularly interesting given the themes that you're raising, but I wonder how it feels at this moment. I wouldn't say it's mourning, but it does feel very exposing. It always does. And there's this sense that it's no longer mine. I always feel that about my books, really, that I, by this point, have done my part of the work. And now it gets remade by every person who reads it. And it gets remade in every conversation. And you realise that when people talk to you about their understanding of your book, because everybody has a totally different notion of what wintering's about. And I think from the conversations I've had so far, that enchantment will be very similar. I actually love that. I love that handing over. I'm, you know, I'm really collaborative, naturally. And of course, writing isn't a terribly collaborative process, although there are lots of elements of collaboration with working with a publisher. But I do feel like that collaboration really comes into fruition once it gets out into the world and readers start collaborating in making an understanding of it. 
Well, I think on the note of readers, maybe we can pause and have you read from Enchantment. Yeah. Childhood used to have dirt under its fingernails. Now it has hand sanitizer. So much of what we give to our children is shallow terrain. Shiny plastic surfaces of soft play centres and toys whose purpose is so specific that they run out of joy after a few minutes. Shallow terrain has nothing under its surface. It's the same primary colour all the way through. It has nothing to explore or investigate, nothing to modify or fix. It permits only fun and excludes all the untidier human feelings. It is clamorous and loud, emitting beeps and simulated explosions, the noise ricocheting off its shiny finishes. It is sticky with sugary residue from tiny hands. It is the business of childhood only, unable to travel with you into your adult life. Sooner or later, it must be set aside completely, an embarrassing artefact of your past. The forest, I believe, will stay with Bert as he ages. It is a deep terrain, a place of unending variance and subtle meaning. It's a complete sensory environment, whispering with sounds that nourish rather than enervate, with scents that carry information more significant than nasty or nice. It's different each time you meet it, changing with the seasons, the weather, the life cycles of its inhabitants. It is marked by history and mythology, stories effortlessly spin from its depths. It is safe from the spite of suburban playgrounds and dangerous in a way that insurance won't indemnify. Dig beneath its soil and you will uncover layers of life, the frail networks of mycelia, the burrows of animals, the roots of trees. Bring questions into this space and you're receiving a reply, though not an answer. Deep terrain offers up a multiplicity of thought paths, symbolic meaning. It schools you in compromise, in shifting interpretation. It will mute your rationality and make you believe in magic. It removes time from the clock face and reveals the greater truth of its operation, its circularity and its vastness. It will show you rocks of unfathomable age and bursts of life so ephemeral that they were barely there. It will show you the cruel of geological ages, the gradual change of the seasons and the countless micro-seasons that happen across the year. It will demand your knowledge, the kind of knowledge that's experiential, the kind of knowledge that comes with study. Know it, name it and it will reward you only with more layers of detail, more frustrating revelations of your own ignorance. A deep terrain is a life's work. It will beguile, nourish and sustain you through the decades, only to finally prove that you, too, are ephemeral compared to the rocks and the trees. I want my son to inhabit deep terrains as his birthright. I want him to learn early to tread lightly through them without trying to own or enclose them, to revel in the bounty of these shared spaces, their place in our collective practice and communal imagination. 
I want him to feel dissatisfied in shallow terrains, to crave complexity. This is why I take him to those places again and again. This is why I insist. It is urgent that he learns this. It is essential. That entire excerpt almost moved me to tears when I first read it, especially a deep terrain is a life's work. It's a thought I've been mulling over for quite a few years now, really, that I didn't find a place for before. But I, I did want to talk about these repellent surfaces you know, <laughs> that I was noticing so much when my son was younger. And, you know, I certainly took him to all of those places as well, because they were the places where other people were meeting. They were the places where we could go when I needed to try and squeeze in work. It was a very fraught time when he was little, but I've always been trying to urge him towards the other places as well. And he sometimes resists me. (laughs) And that's, I mean, that's really healthy. But I hope as he gets older, he will start to crave them and he'll bring his own children back to them and and feel permission to do that. I think that's the important part. Seems like you've been instilling that just based on how you've written about your experiences together, even in your memoir, The Electricity of Every Living Thing, and those early sort of awakenings. It's really interesting as a reader to almost watch him grow up through these lenses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he'd hate that. (laughs) But last year we were driving along and I got my first glimpse of a bluebell wood for the year. I love seeing the bluebells um, because we have this amazing chalk down there near me and that's exactly the place that bluebells like to live and so I did my usual thing of going bluebells and he said I love how excited you can get over that and I thought oh that makes me so happy that that's the bit of me that you love you know that you can see that part of me that just cannot contain their glee when I when I see bluebells every year that made me think like I'd done something right you know (laughs) I wonder if a future book of yours will tackle, you know, these themes through the lens of motherhood. Yeah, a couple of years ago in the UK, I edited a collection of short pieces, pieces of memoir uh, called The Best Most Awful Job, which was about motherhood and about trying to draw out that very mixed experience and very complex emotional experience of, of being a mother. But while I was editing that or while I was promoting it, I realised how much I struggled with the culture around motherhood. I mean, I'd I'd realised that very clearly when Bert was tiny and I, you know, it's probably pretty well documented in Electricity of Every Living Thing. But it put me back into contact with that kind of agonising over how it is we should be as mothers. And I realised how toxic I found it. And I thought, that's it. I'm never writing about motherhood again. I'm not getting involved. I mean, you have more perspective on it at this point. I'm not a mother personally, but I think it's a constant internal struggle of how to even talk about it with yourself, with your partner. It's only getting harder as I age. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very peculiar cultural moment for being a parent, I think. And it also is for not being a parent, incidentally. I mean, wow, we do a lot of agonizing over that stuff. And I have to say, I find it much easier to avoid that culture because, you know, also I write a lot about being neurodivergent. And the way we talk about parenting is so saturated in the assumption that the parent is neurotypical and that the child is neurotypical. And it's a very, very different experience if those things are not true. And so there's a part of me that wants to to kind of step out there and say, no, 
these are all assumptions and actually here are the ways that I need to do this and here are like the appropriate ways for me to behave and here are the things that give me pleasure you know but I actually feel quite avoidant of that and I'm so glad that the intense period of scrutiny of my parenting is over now my son's a little older I hated the younger years when you know everybody had a comment I think now as your kids get older they become a bit more invisible and therefore you become invisible and I am so grateful to have entered that phase I cannot tell you the terrain definitely shifts (laughs) it seems like yeah and you know your relationship with your child changes and becomes much more interpersonal you know, like it's so much fun to spend time with him now in a way that actually, you know, when he was younger, it was more work, really. And even though I enjoyed it and I loved him and adored him, I also found it really exhausting and draining. And now it's kind of neutral again. It just feels like normal life a bit more. And I'm really happy for that to be relatively unexamined. <laughs> I think, I think everything is so scrutinized in our lives and one of the things we need to learn to do is just exist you know it's not a political statement what you feed your child or what you talk to them about or like what you do together it's okay to just just get on with the business of living and you know I'm trying to stay in that very gentle space that is so full of ease for me compared to those younger years when everything was a debate (laughs) I just hated it Well, in terms of the business of living, I'd love to talk about how pace factors into your life at this point. You know, how would you describe your relationship with pace and how do you think about it in terms of our digital lives? Can we find enchantment in our digital homes? How do we slow down to see it all both online and off? Yes, pace is I think the pace of my life is very different to the pace of other people's lives and quite deliberately so. I try and bring a lot more slowness into my life than would be possible if I worked in an office, for example. And I'm very resistant to taking in those kind of modern routines that come often with parenthood, I think, where you're expected to constantly be somewhere and to fill your calendar with events and clubs and societies and uh, stuff and that that becomes like the badge of a good parent almost that you're keeping your children busy and I'm not so sure that that's teaching them the right stuff like I'm much more interested in showing my son a different way to live which is to go deep into the things you're passionate about and to be perfectly fine with missing out on a lot of the things that other people are doing And that's actually the natural rhythm that he and I fall into. So that's the kind of, on the granular level of life, that's the way I try and think about pace. But there's a big however in that, which is that my pace, the pace at which I have to work is very variable. You know, and there are times like this when I'm promoting the book, when everything gets a lot busier. And there are times when there's not much to do at all. And in lots of ways, I think that really suits me. I find consistency quite boring and I love to kind of work really hard at the things that I am getting right behind. But what I hate is working hard all the time. And I am hopeless at motivating myself to work hard at anything that I don't 100% care about, which is like a very autistic kind of approach to life. So, yeah, so I have to find ways to be flexible in my life. And the digital side of it, 
I think I maybe have a different perspective on it than other writers writing in my area because as a person with a disability you know autism is a disability as well as being like intrinsic to my personality but what the digital world has done for me is to open up my community and to provide me with enormous solace and an enormous sense of common feeling and mutual support which I did not have in my life before I found that group and I don't think it could exist offline because it's a way of uniting disparate people and so I have you know all the concerns that the rest of us do about like the addictive qualities of our phones and about the way that social media manipulates us into these kind of quite addictive behaviors and the way that it's skewing our discourse and and actually the very way that we structure thoughts and it's doing it quite deliberately into these very kind of conflict-ridden relationships because that's what keeps us addicted like it keeps the adrenaline flowing and I'm very suspicious and wary of that but at the same time I think that the people who say it's all bad dump your phones never look at a social media site again have never had the experience of feeling like there's no one else in the world at all like you and understood what that loneliness feels like so I have enormously affectionate feelings towards all my digital places and I make it my job to try and control my relationship with it and to make sure that there are other beautiful things coming in and I think it can point us towards enchantment I think there are so many ways in which we're sharing information that in a way that we're actually saying look at this isn't it beautiful isn't it fascinating isn't it magical you know so much of our social media discourse is actually doing that rather than shouting at each other and so we have to find a balance in the way we think about it as well as a balance in the way we use it right (laughs) Well, I think it's what we were saying before we started recording, which is relearning nuance. It's just gotten totally wiped Mm. off the counter in a lot of ways. Understandably, we've been living in a state of extremes for years now. Yeah, and I don't think we should throw lots of babies out with the bathwater here. But I do think we should all be active in imagining better spaces and imagining less manipulative spaces, actually. I think that's where a lot of my concern comes from, is that these spaces weren't actually made to look after us and to take care of us. They were made to innovate us and to stop us from being able to look away. And I hope that there'll be a new generation of digital makers who are telling us when to exit as well as when to stay. You know, I think we're modifying our behaviour towards that. I hope we are, anyway. I think we are. It's going to take time. Yeah. But the other thing I'd like to say about it is that, you know, I started writing in, I don't know, 2007, maybe, maybe a little earlier than that, but, you know, around about that time. And my creative life is so fundamentally tied up with my online life that I wouldn't know how to unpick it. And again, I know loads of people would draw in breath there and (laughs) You know, say, well, that's terrible. That must stop. I don't feel that way at all about it, actually. Like, I've always thought of my writing as a collaborative process with my audience and as a very conversational, intermeshed practice rather than like a handing down of knowledge from myself to them. And meanwhile, like, I've learned so much from my presence there and I've you know, vastly increased my empathy towards other people and deepen my understanding by listening. And I don't know how I'd practice without it, honestly. 
I don't know how I'd do it and I'm not sure if I want to. I mean I think it really just comes down to individual preference and circumstances and allowing ourselves to change our minds and allowing others to change their minds. I think that's another lesson that we're all collectively learning is if somebody wants to quote unquote pivot away from certain themes or ideas, giving them the space to grow. We paint such particular pictures of people and have a hard time when they change. Yeah. Well, you know, diversity is a word that we bandy about a lot, but I don't think we're actually very good at recognising genuine diversity. And diversity means people doing lots of different things in lots of different ways. And that is actually the glory of being a human being that this happens. But we get quite itchy about it when we actually see it. And yeah, everybody's doing this differently. And that's amazing isn't it to have that choice and that ability to explore and that variation across the course of our lives I I love that I love the level of choice I have in this so yeah it's a very complicated relationship and I say this as someone who recently left left Twitter and felt nothing at all you know (laughs) just nothing it was just like bye (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's a gift to have that choice But, you know, on the subject of sort of reframing how we engage in these spaces, let's have you read from Enchantment again, particularly from the chapter Unlearning, which, you know, was really striking in the sense of you coming back to a space that was once Mm. familiar, but given the circumstances, needed your attention in new ways. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. My learning is like the swing of a pendulum, lurching from one extreme to the other but gradually it begins to stabilise. Fewer and fewer things go wrong. I begin to have insight into what I ought to do. There is one single glorious week when I swim a whole length with my legs and my arms all working together and Wendy leans over the edge of the pool and says, I think you've got it. I go home, hopeful that I am, after all, a swimmer. I start to wonder if I shouldn't sign up for some grand gesture, a race or a sponsored long-distance swim, just to make sure I keep on pushing towards my goal. And then, with my whole being on the cusp of something new, the first lockdown is announced. In the tight, worried pandemic months that follow, we are not even allowed to enter the sea. I try to convince myself that my learning was on hold just for now, but my brain has other ideas. The idea of swimming slushes around my mind like cross-cutting waves. Stuck on dry land, I can still not stop rehearsing the new movements my body is just coming to know. I stand in the living room and show my family my new stroke. I bend forwards, spike up my elbows, and let them rise until my forearms can't resist but to fall towards my head. I reach into the imaginary water. I explain how I need to cut the meniscus at a 45 degree angle to minimise friction. I feel my legs twitch to pick. I spend my days humming Joni Mitchell's blue. At night, I swim through my dreams. Sometimes in these dreams, I am hopeless, dangerously incapable of finding any stroke at all and the turn of my arms is like a grinding of gears. I wake having taken on water. Other times, 
I'm gliding through the waves like a yacht, my whole body working in concert to produce a smooth, efficient stroke. I'm impressed by these dreams. Some part of my brain has taken over the act of learning, moving it from my waking mind into my unconscious, allowing me to play out fears and effortlessly rehearsing a pattern of movements that I'm straining to achieve in real time. I am awash with it all, the blue pool, the craving for open water, the dying off of one body of knowledge and its usurpation by another. But soon that also fades. After all, I'm no longer just unlearning swimming, I'm unlearning all of life and how I used to live it. The pandemic brings a disordered, panicked unravelling. There's no time to reckon with it, only to act. The action forms a continuous chain across the whole of the next year, and more, and onwards. After a while, I cannot remember how to do anything else. Like the swimming lessons, one form of knowing eventually takes over the other. For countless months, this urgent living was all I was able to do. And so when the old familiar world came back again, slowly, haughtingly, unsteady on its feet, I barely knew what to do with it. I'd unlearned it too well. The pool has reopened and my friends have started to gather on the shore again. Possibility sparkles in the water once more. But strangely, I am stranded. I can only stand at the water's edge, feeling reluctance floating in me. It makes no sense, but there it is. The water is no longer my domain. I've lost the salt that once felt so native in my blood. We meet again as strangers, unsure how to know each other. Here I am, once again dismantled. There are moments when we must address our losses without being fully conscious of what is lost. Somehow, I must find my way to step back into the water, if only because I remember there was once enchantment there, if only because I'm not sure who I am without it. But the water is not to blame. It only shows the shape of the problem having surged to fill it. It is this negative space, this absence, that I need to understand. Do you feel that you understand more of what was lost then, now that you've had distance from writing about that experience? Or how are you thinking about learning? I think so, but I also think that I needed to acknowledge that I'd been permanently changed by that experience. And I mean, in another section of the book I wrote about, you know, I had COVID very early on. And although the COVID passed, it really affected the other chronic conditions that I lived with. And I don't think my health has still fully really recovered from that. And I think my energy levels are lower. And I think that my work is really partly to acknowledge that permanent change, but also to imagine what life looks like within that. And that's always going to be an ongoing process. And it, it definitely still is. Yeah. And it was interesting to read about your experiences coming back to reading as well and reclaiming another thing that had been so central to your life but it was difficult I wanted to ask is there any stories that you've come across recently that have helped you unlearn or reimagine what enchantment can look like in your own life gosh <laughs> that's, 
that's a huge question I mean I I feel like it's constantly shifting really and it's interesting you know you you write a book about a change that is going on in your life and then once that book's written you go out and live that and I think it's much more integrated into my everyday experience than it perhaps was at the time of turning that book in and that's always the risk I think of writing books because by the time they're published it could be that you've gone completely back to square one like I I often wonder about these people that go on these extraordinary fitness journeys or whatever and publish a book about it I always think if you keep that up was that still going even by the time you published you know (laughs) because you know some things are actually very very hard to really make stick Um, And although as readers, we enjoy those heroic stories and, and, you know, we like to believe that we could could do it too. I am aware of plenty of authors behind the scenes who have not stuck with the stuff that they wrote about. But actually, the interesting thing about working on enchantment and learning to immerse myself much more into small moments of wonder and, and learning the call and response of that is that by the time I came back to it I realised that I'd really sunk into my existence and that writing the book had given me permission to fully engage with that in a way that I didn't feel before like the embarrassment had gone and that I think more than that it had let me you know that I agonise a lot in the book about my spiritual relationship with the world you know like my desire to believe in God but not to ever take in anyone else's religious beliefs which I'm just completely incapable of doing and so by the time you get to now I am so much more comfortable with calling myself a spiritual person and not feeling shy about that Um, and also talking to other people about their religious experiences and beliefs it's taken a burden away and I you know like my book's always a learning process for me that's why I write them without a shadow of a doubt and they work it's like it's a great way to genuinely change your mind is to go through that really huge huge process of of writing a book and letting it absorb over that amount of time it takes I was really taken with some of the points you were raising about spirituality and actually just finished All About Love by Bell Hooks. And I was kind of drawing connections between your two works in the sense that spirituality can help us create these ethics around love and enchantment. Mm. And there's a passage that I wanted to share with you from her book and with listeners, if you don't mind, Mm. which I think is also in conversation. At the end, she writes, love redeems. Despite all the lovelessness that surrounds us, nothing has been able to block our longing for love. The intensity of our yearning, the understanding that love redeems appears to be a resilient aspect of the heart's knowledge. The healing power of redemptive love lures us and calls us toward the possibility of healing. We cannot account for the presence of the heart's knowledge. Like all great mysteries, we are mysteriously called to love no matter the conditions of our lives. The degree of our depravity or despair, the persistence of this call gives us reason to hope. Without hope, we cannot return to love. Breaking our sense of isolation and opening up the window of opportunity, hope provides us with a reason to go forward. It is the practice of positive thinking. Being positive, living in a permanent state of hopefulness, renews the spirit. Renewing our faith in love's promise, hope is our covenant. I began thinking and writing about love when I heard cynicism instead of hope in the voices of young and old. Cynicism is the greatest barrier to love. It is rooted in doubt and despair. Fear intensifies our doubt. It paralyzes. 
Faith and hope allow us to let fear go. Fear stands in the way of love. I love the way that she talks about love as mysterious, as like an unknowable thing that visits us anyway, despite our complete inability to understand it and to really look at it and examine it objectively. I find that so true. (laughs) I find that so fundamentally true. And I find that so true about a lot of the fundaments of life, actually, that I don't think we have the capacity to actually see them. They're so much greater than we are that we can't examine them in the way that we can examine the smaller things and the way that we expect to be able to examine things. And so we're forced to live with mystery. And that for me is is like the answer to a lot of questions actually about God and about love, about illness, about hope. We have to learn to come to terms with this thing that we can never see the whole of and therefore never fully understand. And the trick is for that to become wonderful to you rather than frustrating. Or scary. Or scary, yeah. There's a surrender that has to be made. Yeah. And as you continue to sort of take questions into deep terrain I wanted to know if there is a question that you hope people start asking you more often whether it's about hope enchantment love spirituality I think my hope about being asked questions is to get lots of different questions (laughs) like I (laughs) I never I mean that's just partly because my own boredom but also it's because I want people to have multiple responses to my books I never want to be writing something that is linear or that takes us down one track and I always want to write something that encourages personal individual responses that then kind of filter into the discussion so so no I I hope there isn't one question that people start to ask me I really really hope that I've created something that echoes around and that refracts and that opens up hundreds of questions hundreds of lovely unique inquiring curious questions they're the only questions I'm interested in really are the ones that come from genuine curiosity rather than assumption or from you know trying to assert your fixed knowledge I just hope for a multitude of lovely curious open questions I mean I'm trying to rein myself in. There's so many things that we could probably touch on in this conversation. But to close things out, we can have you read a final passage from Enchantment. Most certainly. Let me find the correct page. Naming is a form of power. It cements a commitment to the subject of your expertise. And in the case of nature, often an ancestral continuity too. Naming is an assertion of meaning, and in turn, it creates meaning. It allows us to greet the things we know like old friends. In Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books, naming and magic are intertwined, with new wizards studying the true name of every living thing in old speech, the language of dragons. When you can name something, you have power over it. And acts of alchemy are possible if you change the true name of an object. In this reality, names are an elemental force of their own, a byproduct of creation. As the protagonist Jed says, my name and yours, and the true name of the sun, or a spring of water, or an unborn child, are all syllables of the great word that is very slowly spoken 
by the shining of the stars. One great word spoken by the shining of the stars. It reminds me a lot of Om, the single syllable from which the universe is created. Both are just ways of conceptualising a foundational fact of living. The alchemy comes in understanding the truth that seems so easily hidden that everything is interconnected. There is only one whole. That we exist within a system that includes every degraded human and every beautiful one, every blade of grass and every mountain, that shines and snaps and varies like the surface of the sea. We as individuals contain it all. We hold within us the potential for the greatest good and the most dreadful evil. We know intuitively how each feels, because there are lines traced between us and everything else. I don't have to believe in God as a person. I can believe in this instead, the entire mesh of existence binding us together in ways we perceive only if we listen. Each of us is a particle of this greater entity. Each one of us contains it all. We find this absolute connectedness hard to grasp. We often prefer to forget it. We often push back against it. But it is there, real as sunlight behind everything we do. Since it's too big for us to swallow whole, we approach it through metaphor. We tell stories about monsters and magic and elemental gods, but really we're finding a way to understand. Really, we're talking about us, all of us together. Some of the old stories don't work anymore. We're finding them harder and harder to understand, but that doesn't mean we abandon them. Instead, we need to double down on the storytelling and find new ways to tell out our meanings. Perhaps that's what we're meant to do. Remake our stories until we finally find one that fits. That was my conversation with Catherine May, author of Enchantment. You can purchase Catherine's work anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Catherine on social at CatherineMay underscore. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.